0: Well today is a bittersweet day. We're finishing the book of Ruth. Ruth is four chapters long and eighty-five verses, right? And those those chapters and verses were added much later. But originally this this root this story of Ruth would have been found in a scroll form. And if your synagogue, your local synagogue had the funds to purchase this scroll or commission a scribe to write a copy of the story, you would um you would have this scroll and you would put it in your uh in your uh Aron, your box, your, your cabinet, right? Like we have a Torah cabinet behind us, our ark. And you would, you would house it there, and then oftentimes, as is the tradition during this festival of Sukkot, or not, I'm sorry, Shavuot, Pentecost, you would get out the scroll of Ruth and you begin to read it. Why? Because this whole story is transpiring, at least the climax of the story is transpiring during the appointed time, the Moed, we call Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Okay? So, do you guys remember, who do we think wrote the book of Ruth? Samuel is our best guess. No one knows with certainty, though. Samuel is our best guess. And uh, Ruth is interesting. Ruth is this character. Remember, she is from the land of Moab. I think I have a map here. She's from the land of Moab. Moabites were descendants of Lot, and Lot's descendants came from that situation that happened in the cave when Lot was drunk and asleep. And Ruth is from that. She's this... From this former idolatrous family. And then, remember, she marries one of the sons of Naomi, the pleasant one. And uh, then there's another woman, Orpah, who marries the other son. And so Ruth and Orpah are kind of contemporaries. They're they're peers to one another. They're sisters-in-law. And then Naomi, after her, she, she finds herself desperate in the land of Moab where they fled to She says, you know, it's time to move back to Beit Lechem because there's bread again in the house of bread. We can go there and we can find sustenance again. So Ruth does this really irrational thing. She leaves her homeland. She decides to attach herself to Naomi without even really knowing, having been as far as we know, to that land, the land of Judah. She says, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. This would have been a really irrational thing for Ruth to do. She she had a potential future as a widow with her family, with her people, with her land, with her God. But instead, she is going to cross over and become a Ruthite, a grafted-in member of the house and the family of Israel. And it's a really irrational thing to do. And we don't really know the author of this book leaves that out. He doesn't set that out for us and say, this is why Ruth did this. She... You know, she weighed out like all of her 401k and she did this and she's, it's all transferable. She didn't do that. She just, it just says that she just said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my people. Your God will be my God. Now it's important that we remember if we're reading this, let's, like I said at the very beginning in Ruth chapter one, I want you guys to read this like you're a first century Jewish synagogue somewhere in the world reading the story of Ruth. Now your people have a long history and tradition of leave, leaving the familiar for the unfamiliar, right? Your people, the Israelites, the Jewish people have a long history of crossing over. Go all the way back to Abraham. What did Abraham do? He left his family, he left his livelihood, and then he crossed over and became the first what we call the Ibrim of the Hebrews, right? Then we go to Moses. Moses leaves the familiar, and he accepts this charge and this commission to lead the people out of slavery, and he crosses over, right? He, so, and then you take Judah, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Joshua, and the people of Israel, they cross over, they leave the familiar into the unfamiliar. The story just keeps going and repeating, That's, that theme is so persistent throughout scripture. And here, Ruth, a Moabite, is joining into that legacy, if you will, she's saying, I'm leaving what is familiar to me, and I'm crossing over into the unfamiliar territory. And many of us in this room have kind of had that theme in our life, especially when we kind of come into this faith. You know, you may have been sitting and comfortably sitting in a church somewhere, or this or that, or, or just living a worldly lifestyle, and you said, you know what, I'm going to leave the familiar and cross into the unfamiliar. I'm going to try celebrating the Moedim, the feast days, or the Sabbath, or maybe, you know, some of these other, other aspects of our faith that aren't, as, aren't, aren't lived out in other sects of Christianity. But you left the familiar and crossed over into the unfamiliar. And you're tapping into that legacy as well, just like Ruth did. And you have to remember, too, that this would have been very unusual for a Moabitist to do this. Because back in the ancient Near Eastern world, your god was attached to a certain geographical location. And that's why there was um, high places in the ancient world. You know, you'd go up onto a high place and, like, this high place is dedicated to this god. And then over there, there's a high place that's that God. He controls that place. And he can't cross, he can't, you know, there's these boundaries. And for the first time, really, in human history, there is like this this revelation, universal revelation of who the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. The creator says, I cannot be bound by your geography. I cannot be bound by space and time. I'm not trapped on a high place. I can't even be contained in a temple. Think about that. I will dwell in a temple, but it cannot contain me. I am not trapped there. So think about that. So Ruth is leaving this geographical, and we talked in chapter one about what God that would have been. She's leaving that and moving into a, a, and, and attaching herself to a God that she really doesn't, she's barely acquainted with, but that is not trapped in geography and space and time but is omniscient and omnipresent. And to the point that all those gods back in Moab, remember, they wanted statues of themselves. I mean, if they were real or whatever, they would want statues of themselves. This God, the God of Israel, says, you cannot make a statue of me. There will be no visible, tangible representation of who I am. You are about as close as it gets, because you are made in my image. This would have been revolutionary for Ruth, but she does it. It's really neat. And then we talked last week about who is the main character in this book. And I submitted to you that, yeah, Ruth takes up probably the most print, but what if the main character is supposed to be viewed as Naomi? She has the most transformation in her life. Remember, she leaves empty she gets full, and then she comes back empty. She, she leaves the pleasant one, Naomi. And she says, even there, she says, don't call me that, call me the bitter one. But then she comes back, and as she comes back, she blesses the Lord's name. And when she realizes that Ruth is beginning to form a relationship with Boaz, she says, may the Lord bless him. You see her countenance is beginning to change. She's beginning to transform a little bit. I think we're supposed to see Ruth like a, metaphorical symbol of the people of Israel and I put that in my slides here. The pleasant one turned bitter. She represents Israel in the Galut, in the exile. And she's waiting for the Goel, the redemption. That's Israel. That's Israel. And to a large extent Israel is still today, waiting for the Goel, the redemption, the redemption, the, the kinsman redeemer. And then Ruth, the friendly one, is a metaphorical symbol, a prophetic symbol of the Gentile bride of Mashiach. Those are the people who say, I'm not born of this, but I want your God and I really adore your people. And it's an irrational, unexplained adoration of the people and the land and the God of Israel. Those are the grafties, the Ruthites of this world. Okay, Ruth is to be seen in that, in, that, in that through that lens. Boaz is to be seen as the kinsman redeemer. He's the agent of the Goel, the redemption. And he is a prophetic picture of Yeshua, our kinsman redeemer, who unites the two together and he is the catalyst that brings everything back together. He allows Naomi to be restored to her people and to her land, right? And we talked about Isaiah 56, 8 last week. Thus declares the Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel. He says, I will gather to them still others besides those already gathered. And then Yeshua echoes this in John chapter 10. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold that I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. And then Romans eleven twenty five. Paul, I think, is picking up on this. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Because a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the pleroma of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness, as it's translated sometimes, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So in other words, Paul is saying, if it isn't for all the Gentiles, the pleroma of the Gentiles, then my people won't be saved. Paul has that on the forefront of his mind and his energy and his his motivations of going out to the Gentile world and sharing the gospel. Knowing that if I share the gospel with more and more Gentiles, it will hasten the regathering and the restoration of my own people. Because it's not until then that all my people will be saved. We talked about miracles in Ruth. We talked about the threshing floor. I'm just doing a quick review here for you. The threshing floor was this communal space where you would comment, you would throw your grain up in the air, remember that, and the wind would hit it. And the threshing floor is to be seen as a prophetic picture of God's dwelling place and the, 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 the seat of judgments when he threshes the grain. And remember we talked about how you would use a five-forked uh, fork, to throw that up. And we talked about that symbol of grace, but it's also a symbol of Torah. And then the wind hits it. That's a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, right? We talked about how that would be a celebratory time, a festival, and they would all sleep around the grain and they would have their heads on the grain piles that guard it at night from, from theft, right? Just like Yeshua guards his flock. And Boaz was doing that. This verse hit me today, and I found it and it intrigued me. Romans 15, 4. It says, for everything, everything. Is anything left out of everything? No. For everything that was written in the past was written for our instruction. So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So was Ruth, at the time of this verse being written, was Ruth in the past? Yeah, this includes that. That the story of Ruth is there, not as a beautiful love story, not as like a romance, not as like a way to give women, oh, I'm waiting for my Boaz. But rather, it's to give us hope of the redemption. To be a foreshadow of the coming redemption, the coming kingdom, and our coming Kinsman Redeemer. I still pray you get your Boaz. (laughs) With all that review, let's read Ruth 4. If you have a Bible, turn to Ruth 4. Ruth 4, now I'm going to share some verses with you guys and have you kind of like we did last week. You're going to look them up and read them out loud here. I talked to you last week and I said, a good subtitle for the book of Ruth is Ruth. How an exiled Israelite from a royal town was restored to her land and people through the stubborn loyalty and faithfulness of a Gentile bride. So verse 1 of chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz had gone up to the gates, and he sat down there. Now, if you don't understand the context and the historical significance of what he's doing, you're lost. You miss it. So I'm going to send some verses out here. Get ready. Look with me at Genesis 19.1. Genesis 19.1. Genesis 19.1. If you beat me to it, just read it nice and loud. Genesis 19.1. Okay, this is the story of Lot and the two angels coming to a town called Saddam. And where is Lot found? At the gate. What is he doing at the gate? He's sitting at the gate. Okay, let's go to another verse here. Go to uh, Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21. Look at verses 18 to 21. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. It says, if a man has a stubborn or rebellious son, who will not obey what his father or mother says. And even after they discipline him and he refuses to pay attention to them, then his father and mother are to take a hold of him and bring him down to the leaders of his town at the gate of the place, at the sha'ar of the place. And the leaders of his town, And say to the leaders of this town, this son of ours is stubborn, rebellious, he doesn't pay attention to us, living wildly, and he gets drunk. So where are they supposed to take their rebellious son? To the city gates. And who is sitting at the city gate? The elders, the zeknim in Hebrew. It literally translates to the beards. A zekin is a beard. The zeknim are the beards. The idea is that an elder has a long gray beard, right? And even to modern times, you'll see in some Arab cultures, when young men walk up to a, a man with a gray beard, they will rub the man's beard and then rub their beard as a way of saying, I want what you have, I want your wisdom. So if you ever see me do that to Howard or Robin, just um, that's what we're doing. And If you ever see them smack me, they weren't paying attention. <laughs> Turn with me to 1 Samuel 4.18. 1 Samuel 4.18. 1 Samuel 4.18. And when you get there, read it nice and loud. I'm not turning there. So I've got my finger in a different verse. 1 Samuel 4.18.
1: Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God. when Eli fell off the seat back by, by the side of the gate? Okay, so
0: what happens here? We find out the Ark of the Covenant gets taken into the hands of the Philistines. Eli finds out. Where is Eli sitting? At the gate. And then what happens? He falls, right? And he breaks his neck and he dies. But he's one of the elders sitting at the Sha'ar. Okay, go with me to 2 Samuel 18. Verses one through five. Second Samuel eighteen verses one through five. Someone read it really loud when you get there. Second Samuel
2: eighteen, one through five. David took a census of the people who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and a hundred. Then David dispatched the people, a third of them under the command of Yoab a third under Ashen, Ashe, and the son of Tisruah, Yolah's brother, and a third under that the Gathbitee. And the king said to the people, I will also go out with you myself. But the people replied, Don't go out, because if we flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us, so it is better now that you stay in the city and be ready if we need help. The king answered them, I will do whatever you think best. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. the king gave orders to Joab, Abishai, and Etai, for my sake deal gently with young Absalom."
0: Okay, so here we see David. And he's instructing his soldiers. He's sending them out to war. And then where does David say he's going to stay and wait? By the, gate. By the gate. The sha'ar, right? And where is he making this charge? Where is he sending them out? Where is he giving this commission? He's standing at the gate. All right, look at Esther chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Esther 2, 5 through 8. Esther 2, 5 through 8. We're going to see that this is also a Persian concept as well because Esther is taking place under the Persian Empire. This is not just an Israeli concept. Look at it, Esther 2, 5-8. through 8. Read it real loud when you're there. Don't be shy. Somebody's
3: there.
1: In Hishon, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, e, the son of Yahar, the son of the son of Kish, and Benyamite. Kish e had been carried away from Israel with the captives who had been captured with Niah, king of the Judah, who Nege- Nebu- Azir-, Azir the king of Babylon, who carried away. And Mordecai. oh man. <laughs> <laughs> There's a tough names, on yeah. Mordecai yeah. <laughs> who bought up uh, and that is Ed- that that is Esther is Esther, his uncle and daughter, from had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as, as his own daughter. Okay. So it was when the king commanded the decree where he <coughs> heard herded, and when many young women were gathered at the Shushan, Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai and that Esther also was taken to the king's place to the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women.
0: Okay, so where did they gather the women? The gate. At the gate. Yeah, some translations say citadel. It should be Sha'ar, gates. Okay, two more verses, real fast. Deuteronomy sixteen eighteen. Deuteronomy sixteen eighteen. Deuteronomy sixteen,
1: 18.
0: And I'll take a turn reading this one. You are to appoint judges and officers for all your shearim, your gates, in your cities that Adonai, your God, has given you. So where are the judges supposed to sit? At the gates. So what do we see and what can we deduce from all these verses talking about the sha'ar, the gates? The gate was the seat of governance for the ancient world, any ancient city-state. Where things were settled, where matters were adjudicated was at the gate of your city. And that's why we see in Matthew 16, 18, Yeshua says that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. In other words, the seat of governance of all hell will not prevail against you. So here, let's go back to Ruth 1. Boaz had gone up to the Sha'ar and had sat down there. What does that say about Boaz? That he's probably a leading elder in the city. He is someone who can make and adjudicate law and decisions within that city, within Beit Lechem. And it says, when the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken passed away, passed by... He said, such and such. And you can see here, the author is, is going out of his way to not name this person. Such and such. Come over and, Vayeshev, sit down. So he came and he sat down. Notice what's happening is we're about to get into a legal kind of, not dispute, but a legal discussion, and transaction here. And it's not rushed. It's not This, like, whimsical thing, like, let's just do this quick, you know, let's make it happen. Let's make sure we do everything, Boaz is saying, on the up and up, right? I heard a really good saying that nothing done in a rush is of God. And I like that saying, nothing done in a rush is of God. He's saying, let's do everything to the letter of the law here. Sit down. Let's take our time. And he says, he took 10 of the city's zekanim, elders, their beards, right? And, the, and, and he said to them, sit down. And they sat down. You see, everyone's pausing, everyone's sitting down, everyone's taking a breath. We're about to talk legal matters here. Now, it's important that he picked ten. Why? Because in the Jewish faith, ten is a quorum, or what we call a minyan. A minyan is it's the needed amount of men for... Um, to, to basically adjudicate legal matters. And there are certain things within a, within a synagogue prayer service that if you have a minyan, you can do. You can read from the Torah if you have a minyan. You can say certain prayers if you have a minyan that you can not if you don't. Um, you know, the, it's, it comes from the concept there was 10 good, uh, sorry, 10 bad spies and then two good ones. So if you have 10 Jewish and, and, and godly Jewish males, they offset the 10 bad spies. There's, there's other reasons beyond that, too, but 10 is the number that if you want to get into legal things, you need 10 men. You need a minion. And so he's doing that. Then he said to the redeeming kinsman, the parcel of land which used to belong to a relative Elimelech is being offered for sale by Naomi, who has returned from the plain of Moab. I thought I should tell you about it and say, buy it in the presence of the people sitting here in the presence of the leaders of my people. If you want to redeem it, redeem it. But if not, it is to be redeemed. Then tell me so that I can know because there is no one else in line to redeem it and I'm after you. Notice he's not doing this by sleight of hand. He's being completely honest and transparent and truthful. And that's how we should be in our dealings with people, especially in legal matters or in business. We should be completely transparent and honest. And he said, I want, he said, I want to redeem it. Then Boaz said, the same day you buy the field from Naomi, you must also buy Ruth, the woman from Moab, the wife of the deceased son, in order to raise up in the name of the deceased an heir for his property. This goes back to Deuteronomy 25 and the uh, 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 right marriage situation we read about a couple weeks back. Verse six, the Redeemer said, the nameless Redeemer said, Then I can't redeem it for myself because I might put my own inheritance at risk. So you take my right of redemption on yourself because I can't redeem it. In the past, this is what was done in Israel to validate all transactions involving redemption and exchange. A man took off his shoe and he gave it to the other party. This was the form of attestation in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. And he took off his shoe. And Boaz addressed the leaders and all the people. He said, you are witnesses today that I am purchasing from Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Machlon. Also, I'm acquiring as my wife, Ruth, the woman from Moab, the wife of Machlon, in order to raise up in the name of the deceased an heir for his property. So the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his kinsmen and from the gate of his place. You are all my witnesses today. So you see, he's doing everything to the letter of the law to the point where he realizes that the Torah says, I'm supposed to do that. If no one else will do this, I'm supposed to take it upon myself to make sure that Naomi's name continues in the gate of the city. So all the people at the gate and the leader said, we are witnesses. May Adonai make this woman who has come into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who between them built up the house of Yisrael do worthy deeds in Ephrat, become renowned in Beit Mecham, and may your house, remember we're talking prophetically here, right? May your house, because of the seed Adonai will give you from this young woman, may it become like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Yehuda. Now, Perez, the name Perez, in Hebrew it means to break out, to break forth, right? So it says in verse 13, And then Boaz gets a free shoe out of it, I guess, too. So verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He had sexual relations with her, and Adonai enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, uh, I'm sorry, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Adonai, who today has provided you a Redeemer. Wait, is the child a Redeemer or is Boaz a Redeemer? Or are both Redeemers? May his name be renowned in Israel. And may he shuv your life and provide for your old age. And shuv is the root of what word? Teshuvah, which means repentance, restoration. May he restore your life and provide for you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Naomi took the child and laid it on her breast, and she became his aman, in Hebrew, aman. It doesn't mean like a nurse, like, a, like, a, like she's not nursing him, and she's not breastfeeding him. That wouldn't make sense. What she's doing, aman, it means to believe in or to support. So she became like a support to this child, like someone who encouraged him. Verse 17, it's where we get the word amen from. Uh, to believe in something. When we say a prayer, we say amen at the end of it, right? It means I believe that. I agree with that. She became an aman to him. So the woman, uh, the women who were her neighbors gave it a name. You shouldn't do this. Uh, you should let the women who are your neighbors name your next baby. Let's see how that goes. Of course, around here is probably just going to be either a hunter, gunner, Colton, They said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they called him Oved, and he was the father of Yeshai, and who was the father of David. So we know that this book had to have been written, you know, around, at least so they could see that transpire, right? But so this Oved becomes the grandfather of David the king. So that makes Ruth the great-grandmother of David the king. It's profound, right? that ruth this poor Moabitus, former idolater who's moved to bethlehem and was on welfare so to speak in bethlehem becomes the great grandmother of the one of the greatest kings if not the greatest king in all of israeli history think about that
1: and we talk about how there
0: wasn't any supernatural miracles in ruth but that is a divine orchestration of events and in different meetings, right? Go with me to Genesis chapter two, verse four, because I want to teach you something before we can finish um, the book of Ruth. Genesis 2.4. This is uh, picking up in the creation narrative. It's a really important event and thing that we want to see here. Genesis 2.4. This is actually really cool. Um, When I learned it, I was really fascinated by it. Genesis 2.4. Can we just read a couple of verses prior to that? Maybe Genesis 2 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, along with everything in them. And on the seventh day, uh, God was finished with his work which he had made. So he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and he separated it as holy, because on that day, God rested from all his work which he created to do, so that itself could produce. Verse 4. So here is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now here's that verse in Hebrew right there, from right to left. Here is the toldot of the heavens and the earth. Here's the history. and This is often translated in your Bibles as genealogy. Toldot, there's actually a Torah portion named toldot about the genealogy of Noah, right? So here you see, let me, for my Hebrew scholars in the room, we have Tav, Vav, Lamed, Dalit, Vav, Tav. One, two, three, four, five, six letters in the word Toldot, genealogy. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Genesis 5, 1. What has happened between Genesis 2 and Genesis 5? What has happened? Sagan? Yeah, what else? I heard somebody say it over here. Exactly, the fall of humanity. The exile from the garden, the galuts from the garden. We're now exiled. A lot has transpired in just two chapters. Genesis 5-1, and it says, here is the genealogy of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in his likeness. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and called them Adam on the day they were created. Now here's this verse in Hebrew: "Ze sefer todot Adam." And "ze" here, "sefer" is the book. "Toldot <speaking> Adam." <in Hebrew> Does anybody catch anything different about our word? What? A letter's gone. Which letter? The Vav. You see it here? Toldot. This is Genesis 2, verse 4. Toldot. First time this word is ever used in the entire Bible. Toldot. And then the next time it's used, talking about here is the, we have the fall of man, and here is the genealogy of Adam. The Vav vav, off. The Vav is a very important letter because that's our connecting letter. That's our our letter that symbolizes the, the, the connection between God and man. All right, it's also the number six in the Hebrew language, but that's our connecting letter. And there's, in Numbers 25, there's a broken vav in the word shalom. And I think Patrick taught him this last in the Torah portion about pinkas. And it says that God established with pinkas a brit uh, shalom, a covenant of shalom. And it uses a broken vav, talking about that in the future, there will have to be a broken person, a broken man six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. So we have a vav that falls off. And guess what? It is misspelled that way. All occurrences in the Tanakh. And it's used 39 times total. What is 39? Why does that ring a bell? How many times was Yeshua flogged? 39 times. And then, yes, Let's go back to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth 4. When you view this book as prophetic, it kind of becomes three-dimensional to you. Ruth 4, verse 18. It says, I'm going to read it in the original language, pares. What do you notice? On the 39th time, the vav is spelled correctly, or the toldot is spelled correctly. The vav reappears. Out of every single time in the Tanakh, the entire Hebrew Bible, it's spelled incorrectly until we get to Ruth chapter four, verse 18. Do you think God is trying to tell us something in his word? This is a, this is a deep, deep kind of insight into it, but this is like so level, I would say, but the vav reappears. Maybe it's supposed to tell us that through the genealogy of Perez, the one who's breaking out, the, the one who's breaking forth, that the Vav will be restored. And that the history and the, the world as God created it will find that true Goel, that restoration and that connection back to God. And let's keep going. So we have... Koretz was the father of Hetzron, Hetzron was the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Aminadav, Aminadav was the father of Nachshon, Nachshon was the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz, and Boaz was the father of Oved. Oved was the father of Yeshai, and Yeshai was the father of David, and the story continues, turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. Matthew 1 7. Actually, Matthew 1 1. Matthew 1 1. It says here, Ve'ele toldot Yeshua HaMashiach. Here is the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah. The son of who? David. And then you go to verse 7 picks up with David right there in the genealogy. And it keeps going. It goes, 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 goes. And it says, thus, there were 14 generations from Avraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the Mashiach. So do you think in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 18, we're supposed to get this little hint that it's through this line will come the ultimate goel, the ultimate redeemer, kinsman redeemer. I think so. But that fascinated me when I learned that. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, And because of him you are in Messiah Yeshua, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and our redemption. Yeshua is our redeemer. Amen? So some lessons I pulled from Ruth in closing here. Number one, the gospel of Yeshua is woven into every Bible in the story, or every story in the Bible, I should say. Ruth, I contend, is to be viewed as a prophetic summary of God's desire to restore his people to their land and to gather the nations into his kingdom. Thirdly, our stubborn and irrational attachment to the people in the land of the book are what will get us written into it. Got me? And then approaching the people and the text we need to approach it with humility and respect. So often I see well intentioned believers come to the Bible and come to the understanding of, of the feast days or this and that, and they get a sense and an air of arrogance about them. And they boast against the root, as Paul warns us not to do. Don't do that. Approach the people of the land and the book knowing that you're like a guest in the home scooting up a table to, scooting up a chair to their table. Remembering that you're being invited, Paul says, through just your trust and your belief, right? And if he didn't spare some of the natural branches, he definitely won't spare you. So I believe that our sharing the gospel is what could hasten the restoration return. Do right, even if it is the days of the judges. Remember, this whole story takes place, it says in Ruth chapter 1, it was the times of the judges when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But we have one man, Boaz, who is doing the letter of the law and making sure that everything is done with the up and up and the utmost scrutiny. Do right, even if you're living in the times of the judges. Do you think we're living in the times of the judges? We apparently, uh, are living in a time where there are something like 34 genders out there. Yeah. We're living in a time when people are accepting moral relativism as the gospel. As long as you're not hurting someone else, it doesn't really matter what you do. There is no absolute truth. There is no absolute uh, moral standard in this world. As long as you don't hurt someone, as long as it gives you pleasure and meaning and fulfillment, then go for it. And that's, uh, that's wickedness. Right. I always tell people, uh, strive to live holy and not happy. Now, I believe holiness will bring you true happiness, but don't be in a pursuit of happiness like the Will Smith movie. Be in a pursuit of holiness, and you can't go wrong. So what do you guys have? Do you have any insights from Ruth or questions from Ruth? I haven't opened up for questions in a few weeks here, but I wanted to wait till we get to the end of Ruth and then open up for questions. So do you guys have any questions? Did you learn anything yet? I loved what you shared today. I really did. Mm. I've enjoyed
2: this whole series. Well, thank you. Really thank you. I appreciate um, you. it. Um, one of the things that occurred to me about the bob being removed, that is another way to look at it, is that man is diminished. Yeah,
0: Yeah. she's saying, uh, for those who couldn't hear, another thought about the Vav being gone is like, it's almost like an, a part of man is diminished at the fall. And I would say absolutely at the fall. Like that that light went away and we it revealed our nakedness to one another and our shame to one another. But absolutely. And then the, the Vav coming back up in Ruth chapter four, in a way gives us hope that, we will one day be restored back to the state in which we were created. Yeah, good point, Michael. Do
1: uh, you have any idea or commentary on why Boaz waited till the uh, unnamed redeemer agreed to buy it? Before he Basically,
0: he was just first in line. Th- that guy was a closer relative, maybe, and he had first rights oh, to it. To say, oh. Oh yeah, maybe he's um, maybe he's being a good negotiator. I don't know. He's being honest, but he's also being—he's saying, well, oh, and also you're gonna have to, you're gonna have another mouth to feed, you know. Maybe, maybe he's saying that. I don't know. I can only speculate. But yeah, Brian. All
3: right. So, um, you know, God commands. Shall not enter the assembly the 10th
0: generation that
3: really so also so yeah yeah how does that how do we
0: reconcile that um, so from what i understand when we look at that verse it's either talking in in terms of the assembly it's talking about having a right to be part of the priesthood um, if you look at the broader context i believe that verse is talking about being a part of the priests and the people who actually minister in the Mishkan and the Tabernacle, or in the Temple, um, and not talking about it. because you have if we if we take that logic and apply it, you have so many people. Remember, I went through that list a few weeks ago of how many people were just through their own pledging their allegiance to the God of Israel were grafted into Israel. So clearly, that cannot be the case. I mean, Caleb is one um, that that was clearly part of the people of Israel, but was not descended. In the first generation, he is there. Um, so I believe it's specifically talking about the ministry of the priesthood, the Kohanim. So I hope that answers your question. But yeah, that's a good, very good question. Anybody else? Yeah. kind of to the Gentiles, like the Gentiles are
3: of Say the first part again. Like in Yeshua's line, Right. So, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The 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 yeah. Yeah. Let me,
0: yeah, he's not like pure bread. Yeah. <laughs> Let me repeat that question so other people i here going to answer it or at least add something to it. She was saying, doesn't it reveal to us that Yeshua has people in his ancestry? who are not born Jewish? And the answer to that is absolutely yes, that there is DNA that has made its way through that genealogy, and into Mary, that is not 100%, they're not 100% descendants of the people of Israel. And that shows for us, this is a really neat thing, it shows for us and reveals to us that our, um, our attachment, or we could say our, um, our identity, as Israelites, let's say, um, at least for that time especially, was not a matter of DNA. It was not a matter of are you descended of your father or your mother. It was a matter of the condition of your heart and a profession of your trust and your adherence to the God and the scriptures of Israel. And um like Abraham, I mean the very first I mean, was was not there was there was no here is of people, and here's DNA, and I'm going to use... And so when people make it all about DNA, and they make it all about bloodline, and there's a lot of cults that do that, unfortunately, and they say that we are the true Israelites, and those people are not true Israelites. Those people are frauds or whatever. When you make it about that, you're going down the wrong road. It's a big distraction. The faith of Abraham has always been a matter of your conscious willingness to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to follow his word. It's always been a circumcision of your heart and it's never been... Now, there is there, there is a DNA thing there. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't negate um, native-born Jews and, and Israelites, but joining the house and the family of Israel has always been a condition of um, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. So,
2: Yeah. Came
0: out of Egypt, I mean, there were... You know, a mixed multitude. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Mixed and it's like yep. being, it's here. yeah, and eventually those people assimilated into the people. And eventually, you know, through multiple generations, there was no major distinction between, oh, you're a descendant of the mixed multitude, no, you can't do this, or whatever. It was, let's let's all assimilate into the culture and the edicts of our king, the creator of the universe, right? So, yeah. So,
2: um Rahab the harlot, wasn't she also grafted into that mm-hmm. lineage?
3: Yeah, Rahab is one. Yep, she was a Canaanite. So
2: that yeah. Two, know, right yep.
3: Right, right. Meditation. The other thing um I like to think is that the, the scripture
1: doesn't
2: actually come right out and say it in the but I like to. Not only, even though she says she's bitter, even though she's empty, blah, 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 there must have been something wonderful about her lifestyle. Yeah. For Ruth to want to come away and go with her. Mm-hmm. And her yeah. That holy, righteous living, carrying out the commandments, that connection with God day after day. She must have seen something. Or
1: yeah. She wouldn't have been so insistent on going. Yeah, yeah. And then the last thing I want
2: to say. Is, we took a tour, just ourselves, our family, our two children when they were young, of Israel, by ourselves. And we went to Tel Dan, yeah. and they have a beautiful setup there, where they have the gates of the city right there. Mm-hmm. And they explain the importance of the gates, and they talk about this whole <laughs> scripture of Ruth, where all of that was decided, yeah. and Yeah. it's so interesting yeah, it is. to actually see that for yourself you know?
0: yeah Yeah, just like a home would have the, the city would have a threshold so to speak yeah, okay. yeah. but uh, David and we'll go to uh, Michael yeah just
3: to piggyback off of the people in scripture who are not of one line Israel uh, we also have Caleb in the Torah yes. uh, it says he's the son of a yep. Um but yeah Caleb is listed as being part
0: of the tribe of Judah never him just says he's the son of a Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Very good point. Thank you. Michael, did you have a question? Uh yeah, just going off of uh Miss
1: Suzanne when she mentioned Rahab, if I remember correctly, Rahab is also in the genealogy of Yeshua. That's she is saying. Yep.
0: Yeah, Rahab is in the genealogy of Yeshua as well. Okay. Any questions? We've got time, so don't be shy. Carol? All
2: of that to me there's hope for you. There's hope for you, yes there is.
0: Yes, absolutely, amen. Yeah, Brian.
3: What, if, take the bag off from your, uh, you know, the attitude of the heart and Gentiles and things like that. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 10 12 um, says, so, so now, Israel, all that Adonai your God asks of you is to fear Adonai your God, to follow his ways, love him, serve him, Adonai your God, with all your heart and all your beauty. And verse 16 says, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah it's always been about your,
0: your, your heart. heart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's always been about your he's always desired for us to obey him, and it's been a condition of your heart, yeah. Yeah. Jason.
3: Uh I thought it was I had a comment and a question, I thought it was interesting yeah. that the catalyst for things to perceive occurs at progression before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. But I do uh, along with Michael's question earlier, it's like I wonder what the significance of there
0: being a closer kinetic chance to negotiate with I really that's that part of Yeah, you know there there could be something where well, like if it's all prophetic, who does the closer relative who does that mean who is that? And I I couldn't I didn't wanna speculate and I I was thinking about that this morning as I was looking over my notes and stuff and I was like, I don't wanna I don't wanna get into it because I, I can't figure it out. So maybe you could figure it out and tell me,
1: <laughs> but I
0: couldn't figure it out. But yeah, I'm sure someone has put out has put out some kind of um, theory on that. But it's a really good question. All right, any other questions? Yeah, I just
3: have a theory. Maybe it has to do with the first atom and the second atom. Yeah,
0: the first atom and second atom, perhaps. Yeah.